HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Alex Guarnaschelli, chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, Food Network personality, well-known as a judge on the popular series Chopped and as a competitor on Iron Chef America. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Alex about charting a multifaceted career in food, her new digital series, Fix Me a Plate, and we'll hear Alex's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. As Julia fans know, she really blazed a trail as a cooking personality, long before the term celebrity chef referred to someone who hosted or performed on popular television programs. Julia took a deeply personal interest in food and a profound desire to share what she learned with others to never-before-seen heights of popularity. After learning to cook well in France, then learning to write, then becoming a best-selling cookbook author and television star, Julia seemingly had it all and did it all in the American food world. Few people, let alone few women, are more admired or revered for having such success and wide-reaching influence. She not only became very famous, but she became an icon in the process. Now I'm going to read you another long list of accomplishments. Professional chef, including in Michelin-starred kitchens. Restaurateur two-time cookbook author, mother, host, judge, and competitor on nearly a dozen Food Network shows, stand-up comedian, and public personality. This is a list that bests Julia in several categories, and it's a list that only begins to describe Alex Guarnaschelli and her far-reaching and enviable career in the modern food world, a career path that Julia very much opened the door for, 
but one Alex seems to have knocked down the entire doorframe while making her mark. She joins us today to talk about doing it all and about her latest exploits. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you. So I read that sleep is not really your highest priority, which makes sense given that long list. And you have such a long list of accomplishments in your career. Is, is Was that your goal to sort of have it all or how did that ended up happening? Uh, I don't know if I would define myself as having it all. I'd start there. So if your objective, you don't define or create parameters for your objective that, that are articulated in that way, then you just live in your life. So when you first started cooking, what was your original aspiration? What, just to be a restaurant chef, or did you not know? Or I just really liked cooking. I knew that cooking was something I could do all day long, every day, and enjoy it. And my father said, you know, you're going to pick your career. You're going to do it a lot. Whatever it is that you do, you're going to be doing it all day long, every day, and so you better like it. So I picked something I liked, which was cooking. I, I definitely love restaurants. I like the electricity of a professional kitchen. And so my original goal was simply to be a chef in a restaurant. And so is that sort of what guided you is just as opportunities came your way, you're like, yeah, I get to keep cooking and this is fun and I'll just keep doing and keep saying yes? No, I think, you know, like anything, you start with one objective you know, that takes you down another road. You meet certain people that influence you in a different way that was unanticipated. I'd say, um, <laughs> honestly, I, um, I I really like the show Iron Chef America. I, I, I thought, well, I want to be an Iron Chef. That seems like a really cool thing to do. I wasn't so hung up on, um, I don't know, what you needed or didn't need to become an Iron Chef beyond being a really good cook and being an expert about food. So I dedicated a lot of my energy to that. Um, You know, I started out actually judging on Iron Chef America. I kind of went in the reverse order. Mm. And um, I got asked by, um, I was on a show called Food Network Challenge, and I was like, I had to make a Thanksgiving dinner in five hours and they had me on that show, and then they called me and said, why don't you come in and judge an episode of Iron Chef? So I did that. I met, I met Bobby Flay, which was, who is a, you know, a big influence on me and a, a mentor. Um, and I just thought, well, I want to be an Iron Chef, too. So that took a long time <laughs> and a lot of work and probably five years off my lifespan. <laughs> But so it seems like that was sort of your it was kind of accidental in terms of host and being on TV. That wasn't the part that was initially attractive to you or maybe ever attractive. Do you like the the intensity yeah. of the cooking competition and that kind of drew you in and then you were good at it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I had no aspirations of being on television. I mean, there wasn't any food television to really aspire to be on when I started cooking. I mean, beyond, you know, Food Network was like a twinkle in Bobby Flay and Emerald's eye. No, sorry. I was going to say in many ways, it seems like you and Food Network have kind of grown up together a little bit. I don't know. I, I don't. You you seem to like to assign meaning and categories and other things. I, I'm, I'm much more of a hippie chick. I think... Um, 
you know, I certainly was inspired by things like watching Emerald Live and watching um, Bobby Flake, you know, grill stuff outdoors in the uh, piercing sunlight. But I, um, you know, my mother watched Julia Child all while I was growing up. And my mother was one of those types that would um, watch her, take notes on the recipe, and then go in the kitchen, collect all the ingredients, go shopping, and cook that. And we ate it for dinner. My mom used the Julia Child program, I mean, in the, in the utmost sense of the word. You mean sort of about hard work and applying yourself to something you love? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of expertise. I really think being myopically focused on one or two things and just honing that craft or um, having an in-depth sense of achievement in a very small area, is it's, it's my method of work of choice. And it doesn't work for everyone, obviously. But for me, it's w- what interests me. It's hard when I turn around and I say, gee, there's so many things I don't know how to do. There's so many things I still want to do, and I'm just not going to get to them. And you're not going to get to them because you so enjoy what you are doing and it's time-consuming? or A lot of things. I mean, I'd like to be a deep-sea diver, a marine biologist, but I think that time has passed for me. You know, I'm not going to be a hand model, not going to be an Olympic ice skater. There's a lot of things that maybe my time has passed. Well, I guess we'll wait to see. I think think James Cameron started doing, like, deep sea stuff pretty late in life, so you never know. Fair enough. (laughs) So I liked, I read something else that that you said. I think you said it on Instagram or social media, and and maybe jokingly, but you said, no one ever invites a, a chop judge over for dinner. And I thought, oh, gosh, is that a comment on, I, I mean, I know you were saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but maybe it's true. And do, do you feel like, is there a price that you've paid in some way for being a cele- becoming a celebrity chef and being on Food Network? Or if for you, is it sort of all good and you were just joking? I mean, I think there's a price we pay for any choice we make, right? Because we exclude ourselves or remove ourselves from the potential of doing so many other things. That's why committing to anything is so hard, Right. True, and and certainly being a, sh- a chef, and particularly at a top level, is is so time consuming it, it, and all consuming. Is is that sort of also what you maybe compared to other careers? I'm wondering what actually isn't all time consuming. I feel like everybody I know is consumed by what they do. You know, I feel like I think a chef is an intense career choice. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I think that that's what, you know, chef, to me, being a chef, particularly a professional chef and a professional chef at the level that you're working, of success that you're working at, you know, requires a fair amount of sacrifice. It's a lot of, you know, long hours, late evenings in a way that a sort of, even someone who's dedicated to a nine to five job might not experience. I think it's more a matter, you're talking about your perception. If you're asking about my perception, I think, I think about seriously, like, firefighters and cops that that have to bring their work home with them and that are doing work saving lives. As an example, um, I think I look at cooking as a a trade, a craft, um, manual labor. I think it's romanticized on television. I think that's true of a lot of things. But, you know, cooking is repetitive manual labor. 
And there has to be joy and passion in that type of activity. I think if you're going to hunker down and be a chef, I don't. I think everything is a sacrifice because it exempts you from doing anything else while you're doing it, and when it's how you're spending your life and your time. So um, yes, chefs miss a lot of holidays. They cut themselves. They can be grumpy and overworked for sure. But I think that might be true of a lot of professions. So I'm more interested in um, food. I like cooking. I like food. I don't get sick of it. I get tired of my work the way anyone does. You know, you sort of say, oh, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to do this again. Um, I think that's inevitable, the human condition. No, I, I think those are all very good points and actually a really good perspective on as much as uh, I guess I talk to a lot of chefs and I hear a lot from them about how hard their job is. But I really appreciate someone in your position pointing out, well, there are harder jobs or jobs that are oh just God. as difficult. My, my friend works in an emergency room overnight. I mean, that's what makes me feel like such an amateur saying, oh, my God, my Burblanc is separated. What am I going to do? That's very wise. No, and I, I, I certainly appreciate that because I think certainly, certainly like any world or sort of metier that one gets really involved in, you can kind of get caught up and, and, and lose perspective. And obviously you devote a, a, a very large number of hours and percentage of your day in life to food. So I, I definitely um, uh, respect that you, despite that, still have a lot of perspective on uh, on what you're doing and that I think what you're saying is one of the reasons you do it is because you love it and enjoy it even over time. Yes. So do you think, though, given the trajectory of your career and being on Food Networks, do you think that that kind of gives you a platform and license to do things that, you know, other chefs don't get to do? Or how, how, does, how does that change things for, for you or for a chef who might be looking to become you? I don't know what you mean. What do you mean by not do things that other chefs don't get to do? Well, like given what? given given the difference between you can be a celebrity chef who a lot of people know because you're on TV and on TV shows versus being a restaurant chef who doesn't pursue that, is it worth pursuing because it gives you a lot more choices or, or should you pursue it just because, like you were saying, you really enjoy it and you enjoy the, the challenge of competition? Um, I think people should pursue what they want to do every day. I think if people want to be on TV, then they should be on TV or try to be on TV. They want to build a lot of restaurants and have that. They they should do that. I, I think pe- some people do both. Some people end up doing only one. I, I, I would say a number of things are decently accidental on my career path, which is, I think is true of anybody, especially when you're in the same field of work for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't know if if you're saying, do I want to articulate, hey, I highly recommend you try to go into competitive TV cooking. I I think it's maybe something that found me as Mm -hmm. much as I found it, maybe even more, arguably. So I, I I don't think, you know, I have one restaurant. I go there, I cook there. I'm also on TV because I enjoy both sides of that. And that's a choice. And also, uh, I consider a privilege 
But behind the privilege and the good luck and the good fortune and the relationships I've had, I've also worked very hard at it. Mm. Cultivating it. It's not like, you know, I'm sitting at home and the phone rings like, like, hey, oh, yeah, cool. You know, you got to chase this stuff down. And I think that kind of gumption, if anybody pursues anything like cooking with that energy, they're going to get an, a tremendous result. Well, I think that's sage guidance. So thank you for that. I, I, you know, looking at the, the trajectory of your career and your accomplishments, I, I, I feel like you've been a trailblazer in your own right, because I think you're you're one of the early female chef hosts who's been, you know, very present and successful and um, followed and, and, and admired on TV. And I, I noticed you once said that, and I think Fair enough, you were referring to something else, but I'm just curious. You said, you know, you really try to ignore gender in the kitchen when it comes to cooking. Whoever is there and does good work gets my vote. And I think you were actually talking about equality in that way, that it's the work that should stand for itself rather than what gender you are. But given all that's happened in the Me Too movement, particularly in the sort of disturbing revelations in the food world um, in the last year, year and a half, maybe two years now. Do you, what's your perspective about the need for gender equality in the professional kitchen? Do you think that would make a difference? Is it something you advocate for? Or do you think it should be more meritocratous? Do I want gender equality? Of course I'm going to say yes. It's not really a question. I think, how do we get there? I think by hunkering down and doing the work, participating, fostering a sense of community, calling a good chef just a chef instead of saying, oh, it's a woman chef. Maybe we could all just be the same. And in all ways, cultural background, gender, age, height, eye color, you know, uh, manual dexterity level. Maybe we could get a little equality and evaluation across the board. But I think um, there are a lot of enthusiastic, successful women in the field now. I think that's always been true, but I think it's more true than ever. Um, So I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think so many of us are. But I guess I was wondering about, given that I feel like, again, looking back at your career, that you've... um, early on been one of the few women in the room and that you just you let nothing stand in your way and pursued your passion but, but so given given the experience that you've had and I've talked to several other chefs and women who who were I guess early in the rooms full of men and given your own experience do do you think that there's enough of an inherent bias against women in the kitchen that there needs to be more of an affirmative action program? Or do you think that just by people being more open-minded about it and women working as hard as men as they always have is is going to affect the change in a more organic way? I don't know. I think that my... I went to Barnard College, and on my last day of college, my guidance counselor said, I'm a cultural feminist which is a woman who is a feminist by virtue of what she does and what she seeks to achieve. And that's just sort of stuck with me, like do the work. When Bobby Flay opened Gato, his restaurant in Manhattan a few years ago, 
he said, you know, I feel like a lot of people are going to think I'm not going to back this cooking up. And I said, what are you going to do about that? He said, I'm going to put on an apron and do the work. And he did. So my feeling is um, I certainly would like to see women get the same opportunities as men. Um, but I think the best way to get there is expertise and good work and being and making ourselves a part of the conversation as people not as women, just as other people that are in the room. Well, I think that resonates with me. I think when we felt like, you know, this year, Mary Sue Milliken and, and Susan Feniger, who are a rare chef team, received the Fort Julia Child Award, and we thought it was important to recognize them as chefs first, and actually a chef team, which is unique, as well as the fact that they were the first women to get the award, but that that was really important to recognize them as chefs in their own right, no matter what. I think that's great. I mean, I thought recognizing Paula Wolfert was another wonderful thing. She's been writing about food and culture in a meaningful way for decades. I think um, there were a lot more women that were recognized for their work this past year at the awards. I attended and enjoyed watching um, all of that go on. I just don't. I just don't want it to be a fad. I want it done for its own sake. And I'd like to see women recognized for just being great in the field and not being women. Do you know what I mean? The same. We're all the same. No, I do. It's a different, it's sort of an expression of equality by equality. And I I both understand and and, uh, respect that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back to talk to Alex a little bit more about her latest projects, including her new digital series, Fix Me a Plate. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You know what often gets overlooked on the Thanksgiving table? The rolls. In Baking with Julia, Julia and Dory Greenspan offer a recipe for making a buttermilk bread dough in a bread machine, which you can shape into sticks, clover leaves, or knots. Hard to beat welcoming guests with the aroma of freshly baked rolls. Pop them in the oven when the turkey is resting. And of course, Bob's Red Mill has the key ingredients. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on their artisan bread flour and buttermilk powder, ideal for making delicious rolls. Welcome back. We're talking to the multi-hyphenate celebrity chef, Alex Guarnaschelli, about her latest endeavors, including her new Food Network digital series, Fix Me a Plate. So Alex, how, how did this new series come together? You know, I really wanted... Um an opportunity to talk about all the places that I've gone to over the years where there is a family or it's a mom and pop or it's two brothers or four cousins or whatever that have been making something the same way for many, many years. And they don't change their recipe. And in a sense, they don't change with the time. But what they do remains uniquely delicious and unique. Um, So Fix Me a Plate is literally me asking people to fix me a plate from a slice of pizza to a dumpling to an empanada. Um, Just an exploration of food. They're they're short, four to five minutes long. So 
by the time you get sick of it, it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I found it really engaging and both sort of kind of equally about the food and the people, which I always think is a a terrific mix. Is that sort of what you set out to do or, or was that sort of what you discovered in the process of making it? A little bit of both, honestly. I definitely picked a huge list of places where there's something truly special about what's being served. Um, And then I've discovered in diving into it that there are people that are sort of of a similar mindset in these places. They're capturing a feeling of reminiscence. They're they're going over and they're um, serving something that they ate as kids themselves. They're preserving their family history or celebrating their heritage. And those are all the things I love, especially when I'm on Heritage Radio. (laughs) And we're... It, it all takes place in and around New York, although it's like across the boroughs. Is that right? Yeah, it's all over. Um, probably span even wider, but right now I've spent a lot of time in Queens and Brooklyn, um, the Rockaways, the Lower East Side, kind of all over the place. But but generally within the New York area, yes, for now. As, as the starting point, in case you get to cover. Yes, I hope. 50 cities in the end. <laughs> yes, a world tour. Prestige worldwide. <laughs> that, that, that sounds great, although a bit filling, maybe. Yeah. And did you, did, is the the list of restaurants... What, now, I, I was trying to figure out, are these your favorite places that you've sort of always known, or did you guys do a sort of more comprehensive look to pick places that you thought had fascinating stories as well as food? Really both, honestly. I came to the table with a lot of places of interest that I've sort of, you know, I always keep a running list of stuff I love, and the producers had some other ideas. But I visited only places I've been and enjoyed myself. I mean, I think when you don't have that authentic layer of the interviewer having already experienced what's going on in any particular place, it just doesn't ring true. I think it's kind Mm -hmm. of like when you go to a restaurant and you place an order and the waiter or waitress tells you their favorite dishes, you can tell if they've eaten them or if they're just <laughs> recommending something that they memorized out of a guidebook. And so you've also published your second cookbook, The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart. How did, how did that project come together? What was the impetus for it? Um, I wrote the first book, and it was sort of like a regurgitation of the millions of pages of notes I'd taken in all the kitchens I'd worked in over the years. Mm-hmm. I think the, that was really emancipating for the second book was sort of more the kind of cooking that I like to do at home through the eye of a professional chef. I didn't want to write a book about, you know, the different varieties of sorrel and how you tweeze them on top of caviar. I really <laughs> wanted to write a book that was utilitarian for people that are looking for tips and ways to add more layered professional meaning to um they're home cooking. Yeah, and looking through it, it kind of seemed to me like you were wanting to share. I feel like when you work in the professional food world, people get like sort of envious that you sort of eat or cook better than they do. But then you, you're you sort of at pains to be like, well, actually, I don't have sophisticated restaurant meals, you know, every meal, and that there are many just sort of basic things you can learn to eat better for yourself you just need sort of that repertoire and that pantry is that kind of the the direction you wanted to take with this book is to kind of share your secret so 
your fans and people could eat better? Totally. I mean, I think you said it better than I can. You asked me a question, but you've actually said the answer. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually my worst habit. So now now you've called me out. so are there a couple, one question I can't answer is, uh, of, of the book, are there a couple recipes you could call out as ones that you do make all the time and that you love and loved sharing with, with people? I'm sure it covers everyone, but I know there are some that, that, that bubble up. Um, recipes you say? Yeah. In, in the, in the book that are the ones that you really love and eat all the time. Oh. You know, it's funny you should say that. I mean, I feel like so hokey to say, well, I wrote the book. Everything's really meaningful to me. Um, I really like the mushroom chapter because you see those mushrooms in the supermarket year-round, and we don't really talk about them a lot. You know, the shiitakes, cremini's, portobellos, white button mushrooms. And I sort of wrote a chapter that from raw to roasted to baked to cooked were some simplistic ways to approach them. They have a lot of vitamins and not a lot of calories. And they're a great substitute for meat. So I love them for all those reasons. Mm-hmm. So that's really my favorite chapter. I would say that was my most meaningful sort of thought or articulation, other than the cake and the bread chapters, which I'm obsessed with. Um, I think every chapter is sort of like a chef's bubble thought. And that mm. mushroom chapter, I was really proud of it. And I felt like it was something anybody could just, go out to any supermarket, buy the ingredients and make the dishes. Excellent. Well, that that's great. And and, and not 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 something I anticipated you might call out. So that now you've heard it here first about going all in for mushrooms with Alex Guarnaschelli's the home cook. <laughs> so I saw you're on the Twitter Food Council. What on earth is that? Um that is a group of people that um sort of engage on so, in social media on the constant running conversation that is food from ingredients to food trends, future food trends, um, just kind of like a crew of assembled people to talk about food with um, anyone else and particularly to engage with one another. And is it done ad hoc or it, I guess I couldn't figure out, is that like a meeting on a top floor conference room and you all have a brainstorm or is it something that just sort of organically and actively happens on an ongoing basis across Twitter? Um, It's more on the, on Twitter than it is boardroom meetings with, you know, glasses of champagne. (laughs) And, and how, so how, can you just give an example of sort of how, is it you do something at a certain point in time or, or what happens in terms of your participation? No. We use hashtags and other things when we want to talk about a conversation to get things to trend or to bring all of our dialogue together and sort of in one place on Twitter. I see. And, and is that partly drawn from just a group of people who are both in the food world and Twitter aficionados? How are people on the council, I guess is what I'm asking. You're asking what? How, how? What? What is the council made up of? Like who? Who's on it? A lot of different chefs, mostly chefs. Andrew Zimmer and Jeffrey Zakarian, Amberell, off the top of my head. Um, yeah, curated and, by Twitter, not not picked by me. 
I see. Yeah, that was my question. Is it something like Twitter recruited those chefs to participate in, or is it something that the group of chefs got together and kind of invented? Twitter. I see. And I also read that you do a lot of your social media yourself and that you enjoy it. Is there is there a secret to, to being good at social media, particularly as a chef? Yes, um, the, the desire to do it. That's all you need. So do, do you think that people who are sort of naturally into social media and doing it, it's just because the sort of medium resonates with them and they kind of get their head around it and enjoy it? You answered the question again. Ugh, I keep doing that. All right. So you you actually started talking about this before, and I was, wasn't sure how serious you were or not. So we were talking about how many different things in the, in the food world you've tackled and done and succeeded at, and that, you know, I was, I was reading that you've even done stand-up. So I wanted to go back to, like, what things haven't you tried that you'd really like to do? Are there things in the food world, or it really is deep-sea deep diving and being a marine biologist? Um, there's so many other things I want to do. Um, I work a lot with Alex's Lemonade Stand and in this notion that we can end childhood cancer with money research. Um, that interests me a lot in terms of philanthropy. In terms of hobbies, I mean, I like I like the idea of doing a lot of things. I want to take a, an in-depth flower arranging class. Don't laugh. Um, I want to make a really giant needlepoint. Um, I want to eat every morsel of fish in Japan. Mm. I want to go to Australia and eat potatoes. There's a lot of things I want to do. What's special? I'm not sure if I heard you correctly, but you said you want to go to Australia and eat potatoes? Um, yeah, because I hear the soil there um, makes the potatoes taste uniquely delicious. And I think you can tell a lot about the soil and about farmers and growing. There's something about potatoes that's rinsed off and baked in the oven. It's a great um, sort of, it tells the story of the soil to me. I love that. Now I'm wishing I paid more attention to potatoes when I was in Australia. It was a long time ago. I will I will wait for your uh, Fix Me a Plate episode that, that details that. Oh, you're sweet. All right. We're going to be right back, and Alex is going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Alex, what's your Julia Moment? Um, I've had so many. Um, my mother made a... Julia Child and Diane Lucas 
collaboration recipe of a cheese souffle, which requires you to take an entire camembert cheese, peel the skin off, and pass it through a fine mesh sieve, and mix it through, um, you know, mix it with marsala and eggs and other grated cheese, and bake it into a souffle. And we had an oven when I was growing up where the door was broken, so we had to put a chair in front of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching this souffle bake because I sat in the chair holding the oven door closed, stared through the grease-streaked window with the oven light on, and watched this as- assembly of ingredients become this unbelievably puffy, cheesy thing, which my mother then freaked out. And I've never seen my mother run, ever. <laughs> but this was the one time she pulled it out of the oven, she ran to the table, we sat down and she put a spoon in it and that bite of food completely changed me. I think I've been chasing that very taste in my cooking ever since and I have yet to find it. Maybe when I find it, it'll mean I find I mean I will have found Julia Child herself. Wow, that that's so just the visual of that of watching thinking of watching your mother run with the cheese souffle is that's fantastic. I love that. Thank you. And for those who don't know, Alex has, has mentioned her mother uh, many times. Maria Guarnaschelli was a uh, is now your mom's retired now, but was for decades a, a top um, and influential cookbook editor, right? Totally. And I should have just asked you to tell us who your mother was rather than answering the question, right? You'll get there. <laughs> Maybe when I have as many episodes under my belt as, as you've had. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, don't be silly. It, it was my pleasure. Your, 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 your problem is a good problem, which is that you're just really smart and really thoughtful. <laughs> I thought you, you know were just going to say really, really talkative. If I have to interview someone... I actually don't read about them. And that way I'm asking the question without knowing. So I, I, I sort of trap myself into talking in a roundabout way because I don't know any better. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Just a thought. No, that's true. That, 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 that can be helpful because then it's just all purely about discovery and you, you, you can't know the answer because you don't know it. Yeah, but the, the the downside of that, and I know you'll relate to this, is that you want to be able to ask the good questions, and and you can and you kind of can only do that if you've researched and given someone thought, which is also a respectful thing to do if you're interviewing someone. So it's a double-edged sword. Well, I I think as you talked about it, and I certainly feel, and was certainly a Julia thing, was it's it, it's all about lifelong learning, and it's all a process and a sort of process of continual discovery and continual improvement. I love me some Julia Child, so I'm on board with you for that. Great, thanks, Alex, and thanks everyone for listening. Do you have a favorite Alex Guarnaschelli moment? Uh-oh. Send us an email or even a voicemail to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Please follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word, on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. To follow Alex, she's at Guarnaschelli, G U A R N A S C H E 
double L I on Twitter and Instagram, and at Chef Alex Guarnaschelli on Facebook. Her new digital series is Fix Me a Plate. Find it on foodnetwork.com forward slash fix me a plate, all one word. Her latest book is The Home Cook, Recipes to Know by Heart, published by Clarkson Potter last September. You can find it at your favorite online or bricks and mortar bookseller. Help support Inside Julia's Kitchen and Heritage Radio Network this holiday season have a blast at the same time. The second annual Winter in the Garden Gala is coming up Monday, December 3rd. This taste-around party features food and drink from top chefs and beverage pros from New York City and beyond, plus great music and super festive vibes in a gorgeous setting, the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Get information and tickets at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash gala. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.